1 uh, Peter chapter 3. Today I want to pick up our reading in verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, once again, we are so thankful that in your great love for us, you have spoken. You have made what you've said available to us. And your Holy Spirit carries out an illumining ministry in the lives of your children so that we can understand the things that you've said. So in the time that we have together, I pray for that illuminating ministry. Help us to understand what you've said. Help us to see clearly where it applies in our lives and then enable us through your Spirit as we step out in obedience to the things that you make clear. And we'll thank you for that, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The preceding verses to this that we looked at today, you remember, had to do with growing as a disciple. And we were talking about four commands that God intersects this discipleship process with. That command of not retaliating in the face of wrong being done. The command of keeping our tongues under control. The command to turn away from evil and turn toward good. That it's more than attitudinal. There's an action issue here, repentance action. And then finally, seeking after and pursuing peace. And we ended with uh, verse 12, talking about both a warning and some promises from God. The warning to us was that, listen, as a child of God, and that's the focus of these verses, it's toward the child of God, those who've been redeemed. He says, remember that God's face can be set against a redeemed child of God. Now, that's not talking about eternal judgment or calling into question our justification before the Lord. But it is talking about temporal relationship. We can be doing things in our life that make a separation here and now in our relationship with God and distance us from his working in our lives. Uh, and he says, listen, understand, that can happen. And therefore, when I'm giving you commands about discipleship and growing, they're more than casual suggestions. <laughs> These are things you're supposed to do, and if you're not doing them, you're sinning. And if you're sinning, then there's going to be my discipline as your Heavenly Father. And therefore you're going to find my face sort of set, my jaw set. I always pictured my dad, and sometimes more my mom, with a set jaw. You saw it, and you knew, oh, no pulling the wool over her eyes. She sees this. And, uh, and so that's sort of the picture, the image that's emerging here. God's jaw could be set. You wouldn't even see his jaw unless you were redeemed and in his family. But because you're there. God, like I said, said, I'm not pleased with you. But he also made some promises as we grow in our stumbling sorts of ways, but designing to continue to grow and seek to be the disciples he calls us to be. He says, I promise you I'm going to keep my eye on you like a shepherd keeping an eye over the sheep was the image we used. And then he says, I'm going to keep my ears open. <laughs> you know, you can know that my ear is open to you. Uh, I'm, 
If you're doing what I'm pleased with, these things will be true for you. Now, today, beginning in verse 13, and actually all the way up uh, into uh, verse 22, the last part of of this third chapter, the scene shifts a little bit. And he begins to address questions or issues that intersect our witness in the midst of this fallen world. Because as sojourner exiles, which is that image going all the way through 1 Peter, as sojourner exiles in this world, we've been called by God to be his ambassadors to the lost. You remember 2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 20. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ. God's making his appeal through us. And we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's a backdrop to these verses, because certainly that command as his ambassadors needs to be understood. Matthew 28, the Great Commission command that God has placed on us as redeemed children, responsibility to go into the whole world. Acts 1.8 saying, I want you to go out and witness, wait till the Holy Spirit comes upon you, because you're going to need the power of the Holy Spirit along with the power of the Word uh, to be my witnesses. We're all called upon to be that. Living as sojourner exiles, we talked about those multiple different countercultural pictures that in earlier in this epistle of 1 Peter, living that way is part of the witness to the gospel. So I don't want to diminish that. God doesn't diminish it. It's important that we be living in a right way. Uh, our life can become a light, can be something that attracts people to the gospel. But what God is saying now, because he always gives us a complete picture uh, that he wants us to understand, not just a partial one. And the complete picture he's giving us is that, listen, uh, I am wanting you to be involved not only in your walk, but I want you involved in your talk. The walk and the talk both become part of what it means to impact on a fallen world. That's Both have to be there. We are, put it in a different way, we are to be sojourner exiles who speak, not merely live. A certain way. Now that's in no way diminishing the importance of living. He spent a lot of verses talking about what those countercultural characteristics ought to be. So I'm not saying that's unimportant. <clears throat> what I'm saying is God is saying that's only part of the picture. A silent lifestyle witness in this world is simply not enough. Although it's critically important, it's simply not enough. Now, here's the truth of the matter. Let's assume that you, or I, and that's a big assumption, could live such an astounding, attractive life, righteously, that people would be attracted by that. They would would say, well, that's sort of light in the darkness. It's not that that wouldn't be a good thing, but brothers and sisters... If we're not speaking the truth as well as living that, then people, people God has given us a responsibility to impact on, whether they're family, friends, or neighbors, or whatever, they would be left with what I'll call a tragic perplexity. What do I mean by that? Without words, they have no idea why you are like you are. 
And what's tragic about that? Because their conclusion is going to be, well, people just, you can turn over new leaves. You must, if I start to live that kind of way, then that must be what's involved in being saved. And it's tragic because they'll go to hell, even if they try to turn over new leaves. And brothers and sisters, for everybody that comes to me and says, well, my witness is a silent one. I'm just living a certain way. I'm sending, I say to them in love, well, that strategy is sending people to hell. Because their conclusion, which you're leaving them with only their conclusion, how would they ever conclude the gospel, which doesn't come naturally to the world, how would they ever conclude that to explain your life? They would rather see it as just an exemplar type of life. and It must be because I'm more self-disciplined, I've got to do this. They would rely on works which can't save. How does somebody know that works can't save? Not by human insight, because that's what humans conclude works can save. The only way they know it can't is when they hear God's word say they can't be saved that way. You can't. It's not by works, remember? For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that out of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so nobody can boast. A silent witness leaves people in a tragic perplexity. Even though you don't want them there, that's all. And that's why in this passage in 1 Peter, he combines talk with walk. Because there has to be this balance. Both have to be there. And if that's true, then what should we say? You know, what are the things that we do to add a talk with the walk in order to have the impact on somebody else? How, how do we, what do we say to them about the gospel? How do we fulfill that ambassador role? And by the way, have you ever heard of an ambassador who doesn't talk, but simply lives a certain way when they're in another country? Now, God is interested, well, even in a, let's think in normal sense. If we send an ambassador from the United States to another country, we would hope that the ambassador would live an exemplary life and not create more problems for us because they, in a faux pas sort of way, alienate everybody in that other country by the way they're living, all right? I mean, we sort of hope that will happen. But we aren't sending them to another country just for that reason. We're sending them because they're supposed to be the spokesman for our country in the midst of the inter interactions of power so that people there understand what our president, what our State Department, what our Congress is viewing certain things to be. Do you follow the point? Both have to be there. That's why he uses this terminology. Uh, both have to be there. It certainly is a problem when our life is not reflecting something that God wants it to reflect. But even when it is, it's a problem if we're not using that as a stepping stone to communicate. An ambassador who's not sharing is of no use on the natural level and, quite frankly, on the spiritual level. So, in these verses, verses 13 to 22, and we're obviously not going to get through all of those today, but uh, I wasn't even if I'd have had the whole time, all right, <laughs> I'll be honest with you. But in these verses, we encounter initially some prerequisite attitudes for this ambassador role, this talking, not only living a certain way. 
And then we encounter some specific strategies that are tied to the verbalization of the gospel. And finally, he ends that chapter by turning our attention to some of the core content issues of the gospel by reminding us again of what the Lord Jesus has done for us, which is the gospel. And so you follow it, some prerequisite attitudes, got to get my head right. Uh, Some strategies, got to have a good plan. And finally, the content. Better make sure what it is I finally end up sharing actually needs to be shared and actually will produce what the ambassador is called upon to produce. Remember that message of how to be reconciled to God, as 2 Timothy put it. I mean, that's what they were there. We're employing on people to be reconciled to God. Unless we're clarifying how that's done, they'll just think, turn over new leaves, try to live a better life, maybe go become part of a church, get some religious activity or something. They're going to conclude all the wrong things unless we're adding the content. Well, let's look at some of these prerequisite attitudes. He says, now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? So even though he's now turning attention to talking, he's still bridging into it from looking at lifestyle. And he says, listen, I want you to be zealous for good. Our good deeds are an important building block in the midst of reaching the world. So how we're living makes a big difference, which is, again, why he's addressed it. Uh, when we walk the walk, as somebody puts it, then, then we have more chances to talk the talk. And that's, I think, the parallel here. Uh, he's already defined for us what those countercultural doing goods are all about. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on those. Remember, that's all about submission to authorities and responding properly to unjust suffering and so on and so forth. The things we've looked at, go back and review the previous parts of First Peter. But he also says, I want you to do good in a certain way, a certain fashion. He says, I want you to do the good in a zealous way. It's the way the ESV translates this. I want you to be zealous for what is good. Zelotes is the Greek word here, from which, by the way, we get the English word zealot. Uh, Zelotes. In intensity. Uh, The scholars say literally, zelotes means, describes a condition where somebody's boiling over with passion. Zelotes. So God says here, listen, I'm wanting you to do good things. (laughs) Yeah, those are the things I've been defining for you. I want you to be that way, but I want you to do it in a certain way. I want you to do it boiling over with passion about it. So the question you have to ask yourself is, okay, Lord, if that's the case, uh, how zealous am I in this whole process? You know, am I just kind of going through it? Uh, How zealous am I? How eager am I to do these very activities? I mean, Lord, what's true of me? What's, what's true of me? The issue isn't only will I do the activities. That's an important issue, but that's not what he's talking about here. He's assuming they're saying, yeah, I'm going to do these things. I'm going to seek for the good work. He says, well, how, how eager are you? <laughs> what kind of enthusiasm do you have about that task? We all know you can do certain things with very limited enthusiasm, or you can do those same things with a lot of enthusiasm. And God says, I want you to have enthusiasm. Uh, How much of a boiler are you, brother and sister? How much of a boiler are you when it comes to living the life that God has laid out for us as part of the light in the darkness that creates opportunities even to share the truth with those in darkness? How, How much of a boiler are you? 
our zeal for the good, not only our doing of the good, ends up attracting interest in the gospel. And by the way, a lack of zeal has the opposite effect. If somebody sort of reads my body language and they see, I'm committed to doing this and I'm going to do it. Not much in that is going to pull them into wondering, well, why are you doing what you're doing? They could conclude a lot of things. It's when you're zealous for it. Salates. Boiling over for it. They say, well, I don't understand that. Something's, something's going on here in this person. I want to find more out about that. What's happening? Why are they the way they are? Salates. Our zeal. By the way, before we leave that issue... Let me speak about zelates again a little bit more. God here is encouraging us to be zealous boiling over for good, for good works, for the things that are defined for us previously as the countercultural pictures in this fallen world. Uh, But the Word of God, other places, cautions us against zelates. You say, well, what? what? Is this contradictory? And the answer is, no, it's not contradictory. Because the Word of God says, I want you to have zelates boiling over these things that are defined biblically as good. That's what I want you zealous about. But he says, I don't want you to be zealous for the sake of being zealous. Zelates, in and of itself, is not a useful tool. Unless it's tied to something. In fact... If it's not tied to the right thing, it can be an obstacle rather than a help. Let me read you some passages on that. In Proverbs 19.2, it says, Desire without knowledge is not good. Actually, some of the translations, that might even be the King James, says zeal without knowledge is not good. Uh, Because the Hebrew word being used here is, uh, in the Septuagint, uh, zelates, moved into the Greek. He says, you know, he says zeal. Desire without knowledge isn't good. Whoever makes haste with his feet misses his way. In other words, zeal detached from truth is no benefit to anybody, especially you. You've got to have truth. And then be zealous about that. Zealous about the things that God defines. And you say, well, isn't, isn't God in some way looking at us and he says, well, at least they're zealous? And the answer is, no. He doesn't do that. And the classic answer, the classic picture of that truth is found in Romans 10.2, where Paul is talking about his, his fellow Jews, those Jews who have not turned to the true Messiah yet. And notice how he describes them. He says, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. Zelates. They boil over with passion for Yahweh. He says, but not according to knowledge. And then he builds on that, you remember, and he goes on and he says, for being ignorant, willfully ignorant of, uh, of what Christ has done for them, they seek to establish their own righteousness and be acceptable to God. They're very boiling over in the effort to establish their own good works foundation to be accepted to God. All right. Zeal, zelates, that's not rooted in truth, is to be pitied, not respected. And no church believing the scriptures spends a moment of its time just trying to stir up zelates in people. Although you can do that, 
think pep rally in your mind if you want to see how zelates can be stimulated in people. But no church that's biblical, truly biblical, is going to say, well, that's what God's call is under my life. I'm going to create a pep rally when we get together. No, no, no. It's a place where we get into God's word and then maybe zealously boil on the things we're learning and say, okay, I've got to act on these. Yeah, that's different. But you can foster the boiling over zelates without any truth, just as an end in itself. And, by the way, zelates is no proof of truth. People come and say, well, they, this place over here must have a good handle on the truth because, boy, people are really excited there. I'm thinking, so are the people at the local kingdom hall. So are the people at this Islamic meeting house. Zalates means nothing, and it certainly doesn't indicate truth, and it certainly doesn't indicate salvation, just by its very presence. Because not only redeemed believers can find zelates, unredeemed people can find zelates too. Just it's zelates for the wrong things. Does that make sense to you? And so God says, listen, <laughs> having zeal is no proof of truth. The zeal I want grows out of truth. I want you to hear the truth and then act on it. Here's the point. Listen to it from this direction. I think probably I'll stop there or we'll have to break out lunch together. Uh, but remember, listen, if you say you have the truth, and remember this is the truth, thy word is truth, our life has to build on this. He says, if you say you have the truth, but you lack zelates about it, the people around you assume you have no truth beyond some intellectualism. If you don't have zelates for what God is revealing, it all falls apart. So is it any wonder, before he starts to give us details on the strategies for evangelism and making a defense for what we know, he starts off by saying, I want, I want you to be a boiling over sort of people. The things you're learning... I want you to be boiling over about it. I want the lattes to characterize you, not as an end in itself, but as part of truth. I want you to be the people who are boiling over with enthusiasm for his word, with the quest to flesh it out in our lives through the enabling of the Holy Spirit. That's the kind of people that I want as ambassadors in the midst of a fallen world. Then if that's not who you are, your ambassadorship is compromised in multiple ways. So how are you doing? Somebody says, well, Gary, you only got through one attitude. Hey, I was, had lots of zelates for that one. You know, I was enthusiastic about that one, uh, boiling over. Uh, and there's really no time to go to the next one, which has to do with fear, not being afraid of how the world's going to respond to you. Because if you're afraid of how the world's going to respond to you, inevitably it intersects evangelism, doesn't it? Because... Evangelism isn't filled with the message the world wants to hear. It's filled with the message the world wants to stomp out. Because as John 3 tells us, the world isn't drawn to the light because it reveals their sin. <laughs> they want to go into the darkness. So if you're fearful of the world, you're, you're really up against it <laughs> when you're sharing a message. Because you know before you start, most of the response to it is not going to be positive from people. Well, I'll tell you more about that, Lord willing, when the next time we get together. But... Uh, Prerequisite attitude. Be zealous for what is good. God has called us as his ambassadors to walk right, 
counterculturally, and then to be boiling over communicators of the truth that's actually causing the walk. If you try to be a boiling over sharer of the truth, but you're not walking it, they see immediately the hypocrisy of your life, and it's a serious barrier to their taking seriously the gospel you're trying to share. In the same way, if you're living a certain way and never talking about it, people are not going to be able to conclude the gospel from seeing your life. So God says, no, my plan is link them together. Let's see both through. You come before the Lord and say, Lord, I've done a pretty dismal job of that at different times along the way. And he says, yeah, I know, that's why I brought you back to First Peter, because we need to kind of re- rehash these things. Let's think it through, and let's be a people now who see both pieces of the, of the call, living counterculturally as sojourners, exiles, and speaking the truth that transforms, because we're also ambassadors, not only sojourners, and exiles. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for some time together this day in your word. Our time was more abbreviated, but I know the things that we were looking at you wanted us to look at. and The blessing of seeing you at work in other lives. So Lord, you have a purpose plan in all of this, and I bow to it, trust you with it. Thank you for this that we've been able to look at. Yes, one verse, but I thank you for that verse. Would you take your truth, which is true, plant it in us, and make us boil about it? Well, thank you for that, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.